Let's be real with ourselves. We all want to do things that help our environment and be conscientious of our actions, but figuring out where to start can be overwhelming. So we're hoping that our authors here will give us a better understanding of the current system and also help us figure out where we can begin. My name is Erin Katie Meehan, and I'll be hosting this episode of The Oxford Comment. Today we're talking about World Environment Day. The UN General Assembly first designated June 5th as World Environment Day in 1972. World Environment Day is the UN's most important day for encouraging worldwide awareness and action for the protection of our environment. It is the People's Day for doing something to take care of our Earth locally, nationally, and even globally. 2018's theme of Beat Plastic Pollution highlights the dangers of plastic pollution, its scale, and the consequences of those. Nearly one-third of plastic packaging escapes collection systems, making its way into our oceans, our water supply, our diets, and even our air. To get a better understanding of what this means, I sat down with Oxford authors Judith Weiss, Dan Gardner, and Phil Landrigan to find out more about plastic pollution and how we can combat it. Here's our chat with Judith Weiss, author of Marine Pollution, What Everyone Needs to Know. Judith was really informative in introducing us to microplastics, what they are, how they affect our environment potentially. So here's more from Judith. For those who don't know about marine pollution, why is there a concern about the state of our oceans? I hope there are no people that don't know about it. The ocean is being subjected to not only different kinds of pollution, but overfishing. We know a lot about the death of coral reefs. It's not just the corals that we're concerned about. The corals are an amazing habitat for fishes, for crustaceans, for for almost all other sorts of marine life. And without live coral reefs, all of those inhabitants will disappear. Closer to home, we have salt marshes, which are disappearing. And salt marshes act as important habitat for juvenile fishes, including the kinds of fishes that we catch and eat. So uh, loss of habitat is another important, serious issue. And then, of course, there is the issue of pollution. And there's many different kinds of pollution that is coming from different sources. So I read your uh, article about cooperative work between textile and environmental scientists, um, which was very illuminating. Can you tell us more about what microfibers are? Microfibers are one sort of tiny piece of plastic, and the general category is called microplastics. And microplastics come from a variety of sources. Uh, They can come from breaking up of bigger pieces of plastic that, after a while, tossed around, hitting rocks, getting old, getting brittle, and breaking up into small pieces, that can produce it. It can also be produced by our synthetic clothing when washed in washing machines. 
releases huge amounts of tiny plastic fibers. So these are called microfibers. They're one type of microplastic. And in most times that people have looked at microplastics in the oceans, in the beach sand, wherever they look, it appears that microfibers are the most abundant sort of microplastic. And these microplastics of all shapes are uh, absorb chemicals from the water and are eaten by tiny animals and by not such tiny animals such as clams and mussels that eat by filtering particles out of the water. And so these gets into the animals and goes into the food chain. And it turns out microfibers are just about everywhere in the world. I mean, they're in the air, they're in the soil, they're probably in all of us because it, they're in our seafood, they're in our water. Uh, they've even found them in the deepest part of the ocean, seven miles down, a place called the Mariana Trench. And they found little critters down there that had microfiber in their digestive system. So if they've managed to get that far down, that kind of means they've got to be everywhere. We know the source. It's, it's our synthetic clothing. And we marine scientists and freshwater scientists and any other kind of environmental scientists can study and learn more about what it does to animals. But that's not going to solve the problem. It'll help us learn more about the problem, and that's good. But if we want to try to solve it, you've got to try to figure out a way to stop them coming out. And there have been some attempts to make gadgets that you can put in your washing machine that will absorb them so they won't go out with the rinse water from the washing machine. These are gadgets that people will have to buy. And I think, A, the population who would know about microplastic pollution in the first place would be fairly small. And B, of them, the ones that care enough to actually go out and buy and use such a gadget is probably very small. So I don't see this as a solution that would make any bit of a difference, really. The best way to really get at reducing the problem is to get who know about how these synthetic clothes are made in the first place. And that's textile scientists and polymer chemists who invented the idea that you could turn petroleum products into plastic. If we can get back to the beginning and figure out a way of re-engineering the way they're made in the first place, that seems to me to have more of an impact than putting gadgets in washing machines. Judith, do we know or do scientists uh, know yet what the effects of microplastics are long-term on you know, marine life and uh, potentially human life as well? We don't know long-term effects because it hasn't been studied all that long. You know, it's only a matter of maybe 10, 15 years. So people are studying it. People are seeing examples where, you know, tiny plankton are eating the plastics and it clogs up their digestive system and they starve or they're eating microplastics and it's altering their behavior, or they're eating microplastics that have contaminants stuck onto them 
and the contaminant level in the organism goes up. But the long term, no. And in, in terms of effects on people, no. I don't know how you would study that because I don't think there's any control group anywhere on Earth that doesn't have microplastics in them. I think they're ubiquitous. But, you know, it is a concern that particularly in cases of those that have chemicals that are endocrine disruptors, things like that, this might be a way of introducing greater quantities of those chemicals into people. So there certainly are concerns, and I would say the knowledge is nothing yet. Judith, what do you think we should be doing to help reduce ocean pollution? If we're talking about plastics, there's lots of things we can do. We can reduce our use. Plastic bags are a very serious thing because they kill a lot of animals. Marine animals eat them, turtles and a lot of things eat the plastic bag and it gums up their digestive system. So plastic bags are one problem. Straws are another one, totally unnecessary. Another real problem is styrofoam. People can do something about the issues of climate change and ocean acidification. And the ocean also it absorbs a lot of the heat from the atmosphere. So it's not ocean pollution affecting climate change, it's the ocean affecting climate change and ameliorating it, softening it, reducing it for us. But we could also ask the question the other way. How does climate change affect the ocean? And then we have a long series of problems going from sea level rise to bleaching of corals to lower oxygen because the plankton can't photosynthesize enough to problems with sea turtle sex determination to problems with migrations and movements uh, you know, it's an endless list of changes happening in the ocean because of climate change. Judith has made us more aware of microplastics in our actions with doing laundry, in our consumption of food and drinks. We don't yet know what the repercussions are of these microplastics, and it will be interesting and informative and necessary to stay on track as consumers with the research that is happening so we can be better informed. Judith also highlights the daily actions we can implement to reduce our plastic use. Getting rid of uh, plastic bags and using canvas instead. Getting rid of plastic bottles and using others such as glass and metal getting rid of straws and we're seeing the reduce straw use movement across the country and globe and even switching out our plastic containers for glassware as well which I think uh, later in the episode we learn more about this with Phil Landrigan. Our next guest Dan Gardner author of Environmental Pollution in China What Everyone Needs to Know talks about the economic repercussions of environmental pollution. Let's hear more from Dan. At a high level, can you tell us how China got 
to this crisis of pollution? Um, since the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949, China has set itself on the path of modernization. Modernization has meant industrialization. As a consequence, the economy has experienced skyrocketing growth, especially since 1980, where there has been an annual GDP increase of nearly 10%. So in 1980, for example, China had the world's 10th largest economy. Today, it's the second largest in the world after the US. In 2000, China consumed 1 billion tons of coal. As recently as 2013, coal consumption had more than tripled to over 3 billion tons. And since coal burning uh, is the main culprit in the certainly air pollution. Now, of course, there are other effects of the economic rise. The skyrocketing economy has led to a growing middle class, growing urbanization, growing consumerism, all of which play an important part in the country's environmental story. In 1980, again, I keep going back by way of comparison, there was almost no private vehicle in China. There were government vehicles, almost no private vehicles. The flying pigeon bicycle ruled the roads, those black bikes that would fan out all over China and really just as far as the eye could see. Um, today, China is by far the world's largest car market. 24 million units were sold last year. In China, 17 million in the U.S. by comparison. So uh, unsurprisingly, Car exhaust has become the second largest source of air pollution in China after coal burning. And then, too, consider the high cost to the environment. As urban areas and sprawl grow, as roads and highways multiply, and then think, too, about Chinese travel. They are the world's largest contingent of international air travelers. You bring up a great point, especially in today's current political climate, not just in the U.S., but um, in changes and trends we're seeing in Europe and around the world in general. So linking, I think, China to the U.S. and how they impact uh, each other is a great way to help people understand why the environmental issues in China are also U.S. issues are also Western issues. So we look at the smog, we see pictures of smog in China, and we think, okay, that's China's problem. You know, the sulfates, the ozone, that's China's problem. But point is that those pollutants can um, ride westerly winds um, from China and make their way across the Pacific to the west coast of the United States. And some people have timed how long it takes. It's as little as four days. And studies have now shown the pollutants hanging in the air over California come from Asia and mostly China. Studies that show that the Willamette River, the mercury deposition there, one-fifth of it, originates in China, and that 10 to 30 percent of all mercury deposition in the United States comes from China. So when we think of the air in China, uh, you know, again, the cliche is that air does, does not honor national boundaries, and we see that especially with the mercury deposition and the smog in the U.S.'s west. China's environmental crisis doesn't just affect 
the environment. It affects our economy. They have really put a great deal of faith in the Chinese marketplace and have built out some of their production facilities in order to meet demands in China. Well, the reality is that those demands in China are falling. They are trying to wean themselves from coal for the reasons I suggested. They know that coal is the problem. Um, they're trying to build up renewables. They're turning to gas as an alternative. And so in weaning themselves from coal, they're having an effect on the U.S. coal companies. In, in 2016, two huge coal companies, Arch Coal and Peabody, filed for bankruptcy. And largely, it's a result of the Chinese market. And again, if we conclude that China is serious about this weaning from coal, then we have to wonder what that's going to mean for U.S. coal-related companies in the future already again. Uh, uh, China's market has had a significant effect. I think we can expect more of, of the same. It isn't a one-way relationship. The U.S. also affects China. It contributes greatly, and this is perhaps something that we don't tend to think about as much. We have pictures of Beijing in our mind, and we see the smog, and we don't really account for what our responsibility and the world's responsibility might be for that, which isn't to say that China doesn't have responsibility, it's simply to say that we contribute as well. I mean, after all, we consume products that are made in China for export. Um, and we do that because they're cheaper. And so we buy up those products, and it turns out that 6 to 7% of the pollution plaguing China's air is from the manufacture of products made in China for U.S consumption. So here's an ironic twist. Some of the very pollution that gets picked up by westerly winds over China and makes it way to the west coast of the United States is pollution that exports for the United States are are creating in the manufacture of those products for the United States. Perhaps more directly in the last 20 years, American corporations, Apple, Nike, Starbucks, Pepsi, and others have been setting up shops for establishing supply chains in China. And, and that makes good economic sense, especially for these companies. Labor there is cheaper. Environmental laws are laxer there. And China and its neighbors now represent an attractive and growing market. China and its people, of course, they have prospered economically from the presence, the investments of these corporations. Still, their plants and mills and those of their suppliers contribute to the pollution in China's air and water. And, and so this is leading, I think, to a very interesting question. Whose pollution is it? Is it China's because China is the country of production? Or is this pollution the U.S.'s because the U.S. is the country of consumption? So these are just a few ways in which the two countries uh, do have an impact on each other. Can you give us a few examples of some of the steps that China is taking to clean up the environment? Certainly since 2013. I think that there's a tipping point there um, for a number of reasons, but President Xi, he assumes power and seems to be invested in tackling the pollution problems. And so what we see are a number of steps in quick succession. Uh, we see an air action plan funded to the tune of $270 billion, a water action plan 
funded to the tune of $330 billion, a soil action plan where the amount of funding has yet to be decided. And this is to clean up and to protect air, water, and soil. So in each of those areas, we see a discrete um, and comprehensive action plan. Um, then in 2014, and I think this is well known, of course, is Premier Li Keqiang declared a war on pollution. And at that point, he shut down coal-fired power plants. I mean, coal, after all, is the culprit in all of this, certainly in air pollution. And so if you can bring coal consumption down, you're going to bring air pollution down and indeed water and soil pollution as there is deposition from air pollution. But in any case, Lee, he shuts down coal-fired power plants and coal power industries like steel, cement, and aluminum. But that war strategy involved much more than just shuttering these coal-fired power plants. Um, it entailed developing new cleaner sources of energy. And this is where I think they are really speeding ahead of the rest of the world. And, and here, I mean especially wind and solar. They are promising to increase non-fossil fuels to 20% of the country's total energy mix by 2030. Um, in 2015, it was just about 12%, so they're moving ahead quickly there. But more than that is the amount of investment. They are the world's largest investor in clean energy technology by far, spending in 2017, more than I think it was $132 billion, followed very distantly by the U.S. $57 billion. I mean, and then just a few months ago, Beijing announced plans to ban, very tentative plans, I should say, to ban the production and sale in China of all gas and diesel-powered vehicles. Last year, the country introduced a nationwide carbon trade policy. Finally, and this is a project that I'm working on now, there is today a nationwide campaign sponsored by Beijing and heavily endorsed by President Xi to build an ecological civilization, to forge a civilization where there coexists in their terms, in their definition, a harmony between humanity and nature, where the destructive attitude toward nature that has been characteristic in their view of industrial civilization is discarded. And one of the clear messages in this campaign, there are lots of messages, but one of the clear messages um, to the people has been to reduce consumption, that we're an over-consuming society. But I think the message is we need to pull back, we need to change our way of life and our attitudes. So I think you've answered this last question a little bit. What is the one thing that everyone needs to know about global pollution throughout all of your answers? But do you want to give us a quick summary of that? I mean, what we have to have in mind is that this global pollution is is just that. It's global. <laughs> you know, China, no doubt, is affecting some of its neighboring countries, especially South Korea and Japan. What happens, of course, is that as the wind blows as down, downwind across the Yellow and East China Seas, Korea and Japan see and feel the effects. Korean media has taken to calling the invasive smog from China Chinese air raids. There's also the acid rain that China produces, and that rain makes its way to these countries from coal plants in China. And when the monsoon winds blow in from the northeast during the months from October to December, countries in Southeast Asia, especially Vietnam, are affected. That is, that's when the smog hits them. 
Mercury is admitted into the air during coal combustion as China burns coal, and it's said to be responsible for the high level of mercury deposition on Japan's iconic Mount Fuji, or at least Japanese scientists are arguing that. There's worry, too, that the mercury that's carried in the air from China is falling into the Western Pacific Ocean, that is, the Yellow and East China Seas, harming the ocean water and harming marine life, like yellowfin tuna. Um, then there's the rivers in China with headwaters in China um, that flow through Southeast Asian countries. And here I'm thinking of the Mekong, the Salween, the Red, the Black um, rivers. They have very high levels of heavy metals and industrial chemicals. This high level of metal and, and chemical endangers the biodiversity and ecology of these waterways in these neighboring countries, and especially the livelihood of the Southeast Asian people who rely on those waterways, especially for the cultivation of rice. I think China is terribly interested in the environment, is really determined to deal with its environmental problems. I think they're pushing very hard in the development of uh, anti-pollution measures, not just because they're anti-pollution, but because they are economically progressive and economically advantageous. And I do worry, I have to say, for countries like the U.S. that are ignoring the lag that's being created. Let's hope there is a sort of change in, in attitude in the near future. So Dan talks a lot about mercury deposition, and as a layperson um, and a non-expert in environmental pollution, we want to talk a little bit more about what mercury deposition is. So according to the EPA, mercury is released, as we know, from rocks, uh, volcanoes, and forest fires, but it's also released um, due to human activities, such as burning coal, oil and wood as fuel. These actions release mercury into the air. An airborne mercury falls to the ground in raindrops and dust or gravity, and this is mercury deposition. So the amount of mercury deposited depends on how much mercury is released from that local region, um, and that can affect us long term. Dan also brings up some really good points to understand pollution is a global issue. It is not just a local or regional or national issue. This is truly something that affects all of us, regardless of where we live. Something that I find really fascinating, this idea of who owns the pollution. Is it the creator of pollution or the consumer of that pollution? Our last guest, Phil Landrigan is co-author of Children and Environmental Toxins, What Everyone Needs to Know. Phil talked about the endocrine system and endocrine disruptors, which Judith touched upon earlier in the podcast, as well as uh, what expecting mothers can do to reduce the risk uh, to their babies and ensure the health and safety of their children, as well as future actions. Uh, so let's hear more from Phil. Phil, can you give a brief introduction to the endocrine system and the role it plays in our health? Sure. Well, the, the endocrine system 
is one of the two big signaling systems in the human body, one of the two ways that cells and organs in the body talk to each other. Cells talk to each other through the, through the nervous system, communicating uh, impulses over the nerves that where one part of the body, like the brain, tells another part of the body, like the muscle, what to do. But the other big signaling system in the human body is the endocrine system, which is basically the system of glands and hormones that act as chemical messengers. There are a number of so-called endocrine glands in the human body. There's the pituitary gland at the base of the brain, the thyroid gland in the neck, uh, the adrenal glands, the testes in men, the ovaries in women, the pancreas that uh, re releases insulin into the bloodstream. All of these endocrine glands release very powerful chemicals called hormones into the bloodstream. And those chemicals wash through the bloodstream, they hit other organs throughout the body, and they tell the other organs what to do. So, for example, the thyroid hormone, thyroxin from the thyroid gland, can either speed up metabolism if it's produced in abundance, or metabolism can slow down around the body if there's not enough thyroid hormone. Uh, adrenaline from the adrenal gland kicks in when there's an emergency and enables us to run very fast either towards or away from a problem. The testes and the and the ovaries in men and women are critical to uh, governing uh, human reproduction. How do plastic and other endocrine disruptors affect children? And what are some long-term effects that we're starting to see? So there are a number of chemicals that have come on the market over the last 40 or so years that have the ability to get into the body and disrupt endocrine signaling. Some people talk about these as endocrine disruptors. Some people say that they have these are chemicals that have the ability to hack the endocrine system. And they're in some cases, they can block the action of hormones so that when a hormone is supposed to t give a message to a cell, the message is never delivered. One of the classic examples is, is DDT, the pesticide DDT that used to be used very widely in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s. And what happened back then, uh, the brilliant uh, biologist Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, noticed that a lot of the eagles and the ospreys were failing to reproduce, and indeed ospreys and eagles were in danger of going extinct in eastern North America. And it turned out what happened was that through the food chain, those birds were picking up large quantities of DDT. The DDT got into their bodies. It interfered with their endocrine signaling. Specifically, it interfered with the production of estrogen and the result was that the birds were not able to produce proper eggs, which is why the, the species was going extinct. And uh, fortunately for all of us, DDT was banned in the USA in the early 1970s by EPA. It was one of the first actions that EPA took after it was formed. In humans, we have identified a number of chemicals that can behave as endocrine disruptors in the human body. One of them is a chemical called phthalates, very commonly used. Um, they're put into rigid plastics to make the plastics more flexible. You'll find phthalates, for example, in, in the soft plastics that's on food containers. Or you'll, you'll find it the intravenous tubing that we use in hospitals to make the tubing flexible. And the, the stuff gets into the human body, and it seems to interfere with the action of androgen. And so if a pregnant woman gets phthalates into her body while she's pregnant. Uh, the phthalates get into her bloodstream, they cross over into her baby's bloodstream, and if it's a baby boy, it can increase the risk 
of abnormalities in the reproductive organs of the baby boy. Another example is um, a, another plastics chemical called BPA, bisphenol A, which is also added to plastics. Um, for example, a lot of the plastic water bottles contain BPA, and uh, if BPA gets into the developing human brain, it has the capacity to, to cause behavioral problems that resemble, um, look like attention deficit disorder or autism. Phil, as a parent myself, I'm really interested in this. So what steps can parents take to help address this problem? Yes, there, there are actually a number of things that parents can do to reduce their own ex- exposures and reduce their children's exposures to endocrine disruptors and, and other uh, toxic chemicals. One very straight-ahead thing that parents can do is, to the greatest extent that they can, parents should buy organic. I understand that organic costs more. That's, that's a fact, unfortunately. But very good studies have shown that families who eat a mostly or- organic diet have 90% lower levels of pesticides in their body. It's really quite remarkable. And, and moreover, these studies show that if a family is eating so-called conventional food and switches to a mostly organic diet, most of the pesticides wash out of their bodies in 24 to 48 hours. So you can, you can get some benefit very, very quickly. Another way to reduce use of pesticides is don't spray pesticides. Whenever you can, don't, don't spray pesticides in your house, on your lawn, on your garden. Use integrated pest management instead of chemicals to control cockroaches. And then when it comes to, to plastics, um, I've become more and more an advocate for storing food in, in glass. Phil, we spoke to Dan Gardner, who's the author of Environmental Pollution in China, and he introduced us to this idea of creators and consumers and the ownership of environmental pollution. So can you tell us who you think owns environmental pollution, creators or consumers? Well, the world is awash in manufactured chemicals today. Since the 1950s, more than 140,000 new chemicals have come on world markets. And when the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, goes around the United States and does blood testing on the American public, they find several hundred manufactured chemicals present at low levels in in the bodies of all Americans. These, these are chemicals that did not exist in 1950, chemicals that our grandparents were never, ever exposed to. So there's two problems here. One is the fact that the chemicals are out there in the first place, and we're all exposed to them. And the second problem is that a very large proportion of these chemicals have never been tested for safety, never been tested for their possible toxicity. What this means, therefore, is that when the chemicals are in people, when they're in children, we simply don't know what negative effects they might have. We don't know if they can cause sickness. We don't know if they can cause learning problems. We don't know if they can cause birth defects. And people will say, well, it's not a big deal. The chemicals are at low levels. Everybody's walking around. Those are true facts. But that statement ignores the fact that there are periods in a child's life, especially during the nine months of pregnancy, during the first couple of years after birth, when the child is exquisitely sensitive to chemicals and even low-dose exposures can have harmful effects. So I worry a lot about the fact that we're all exposed to chemicals. I worry especially about exposures in in early life. And I encourage women who are pregnant, young women who are thinking about becoming pregnant, do your best to minimize your exposures to chemicals. I mean, I think most pregnant women these days know about not smoking and not drinking alcohol. 
But beyond that, eat the right kind of fish, but avoid the fish that are high in toxic chemicals. Eat organic. Stay away from pesticides. And what is the one thing that everyone needs to know about environmental toxins in children? I would say there, there are two things that everybody should know about environmental toxins. The, the first is that nobody is more vulnerable and more sensitive to them than, than young children and pregnant women. So that's a period in a person's life when you need to exercise particular care. But the second thing I'll say is positively, parents need to know that they have a lot of power here, that information is power. And the reason that we wrote this book was to give parents the and grandparents and everybody who cares for children, to give them the knowledge that they could use to minimize and eliminate their children's exposure to toxic chemicals to keep their kids healthy. Today we are fortunate enough to speak to three experts who helped us learn more about plastic pollution, identify areas in which we can reduce our consumption of plastic, and helped us understand the repercussions of using plastic, not just on ourselves and our future children, though that is incredibly important, but on the environment, on our economies, and more. As a non-expert or a layperson in this area, I myself have learned things that I can take back to my own life in terms of reducing my plastic use and being more mindful of the materials that my own children are consuming but also being exposed to. We hope that this podcast episode has given you more to think about, not just, again, locally, but internationally, uh, and that this can spark some interesting discussions on the economic impacts, the idea of who owns pollution, and more. We thank you, our guests, Judith Weiss, Dan Gardner, and Phil Landrigan, all authors of books in our What Everyone Needs to Know series, as well as the team here at Oxford for putting this episode of The Oxford Comet together. So thanks for joining us. I'm Erin Katie Meehan, and we'll see you on the next one.